Carl Henry was one of the leading theologians of the last century. He died in 2003. On his last trip to Southern Seminary, his host, Russell Moore, recalls a conversation that Dr. Henry had with a group of young theologians. Someone mentioned the impotence and the shallowness of today's evangelical church and asked Dr. Henry if he had much hope for the future. He answered them, of course there is hope for future evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current establishment. They're probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who once saved by the grace of God were mighty warriors for the faith. Carl Henry could have been added to the list himself. Before he was converted to Christ, he was a journalist working for a local newspaper in New York City. In his blog, Russell Moore, he reflects back on this conversation and on Carl Henry's wisdom. He writes this, The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. You see, Moore explains, the Spirit of God can turn all that around. And He even seems to delight to do so. God loves to showcase His grace. Russell Moore ends his blog with this word to his readers. So, be kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway, the one who just shot you an obscene gesture. He might just be the person who evangelizes your grandchildren. It's true. God gathers his saints from the most unexpected places. He starts out with heathen and he makes them holy. Think about it. At this very moment, the next Billy Graham might be in a frat house somewhere, hammered and hung over. Christianity has and always will be propelled by the transforming power of the gospel. Over the last few years, I've read blogs and posts and articles bemoaning the future of the church in America. The church is becoming increasingly compromising and carnal. The culture around us is growing more secular and hostile to Christianity. Persecution is on the horizon. And people talk about these issues as if we've never faced them before. As if it's never been worse. Do you realize how dark and pagan the world was when Christianity first took root? Ancient Rome didn't broadcast its immorality in HDTV or 50 megabytes per second across the internet. But the moral climate in the first century AD was even more decadent than it is today. History tells us that long before the Goths and Vandals rode their horses into Rome, the city had collapsed internally. Prosperous Romans had grown fat and lazy. They had become lawless out of sheer boredom. Rome's preoccupation was to search for whatever was new and crude 
in the way of entertainment so that it could entertain itself. Historian Tacitus wrote of the city's attitude, the greater the infamy, the wilder the delight. Spears and swords were not what defeated Rome. Rome was not conquered from without. Rome fell from within. Roman society lost its nobility and its morality. The inability to control its selfish and sensual desires became its downfall. Rome was defeated by its own depravity. You've heard of Skid Row? Well, welcome to Skid Rome. If you think we've hit rock bottom today, you should read Romans chapter 1. The chapter is Paul's infamous description of the breakdown of Greco-Roman culture. Rome's ungodliness led to its unrighteousness. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the empire's X-rated culture. It was filled with unnatural lust and unbridled indulgence and calloused consciences and self-serving idolatry and perverted sexuality. It takes a strong, strong stomach to read Romans chapter 1. Three times in that chapter, Paul tells us that God gave them up. He gave them over to their own corruption. And when Paul sat down to write Romans chapter 1, guess where he was? The apostle was looking at his, out his window at the city of Corinth. Romans was written from Corinth. The Corinthian metroplex was his inspiration for this portrait on Roman perversity. Corinth was the city that had forgotten how to blush. Of all the cities across the empire, Corinth was the capital of vice. It was Mardi Gras every night in Corinth. And this meant that the church in Corinth was a genuine miracle. The gospel had caught on there in the most unexpected of places and among the most unlikely of people. When Paul got to town, he didn't recruit some local Christians to help him plant his church. Prior to Paul, only pagans lived in Corinth. There were no Christians. In Romans chapter 1, along with Rome's perversion, Paul also writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he had proven its power in Corinth. In a city gone wild, the gospel had changed lives. It had transformed heathen into children of God. The church at Corinth was exhibit A for the power of Jesus. And this is why the problems in Corinth, in this church, were such a concern to Paul. Many of these Christians had tasted the life-transforming power of the gospel. And yet rather than expect that reality to be lived out among each other, there were folks in this church who claimed to be Christian and yet had no evidence in their life of any changes made. Members of this church were being divisive, forming little cliques. Some had tolerated a man who was shacking up with his father's wife. Others had even, were even taking each other to court. The Corinthians weren't living like transformed people. Their lives were no different than the pagans around them. And Paul warns them that a lifestyle that evidences no change that's marked by unrighteousness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Say what you want. Claim what you will. 
but the proof is in the pudding. A person who's truly experienced the power of the Christian gospel will live a changed life. He or she will not continue in a lifestyle of perpetual rebellion to God. Now, don't misunderstand. No Christian is perfect. We live in fallen flesh that's susceptible to weakness and sin. We live in a fallen world that's permeated with temptation. There will be times when every Christian loses their bearings or blurs the lines. We'll need to repent and turn back and learn a lesson and continue to grow. This is just part of being a Christian this side of heaven. At times, we'll stray. But you got to walk the path most of the time in order to be considered to stray. At times we'll fall, but that implies that you've been trying to stand, not just lying down. Both straying and falling are an anomaly, not the norm. They're not the lifestyle. Paul is concerned about sin as a way of life. This was what was happening at the church in Corinth. Cocky Christians were living in brazen, continual sin. In Corinth, repentance had fallen on hard times. Churchgoers wanted God's blessings. They wanted the salvation. But nobody wanted to turn from their sin and live to change life. The Corinthians had winked at sin. It was no big deal to them. Habitual sin was no barrier to fellowship and standing in this church. Folks lived unbiblical and immoral lives, and yet they still called themselves Christians. The lax attitude was a denial of the gospel. It was an affront to Jesus and the reasons for which he died. And this is why Paul says plainly in verse 9, he warns them, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Realize All humans are twisted. We're contorted in some way or another. We're born out of shape. None of us are what God intended. The Bible says that the first man, Adam, was made in the image and likeness of God, yet sin marred that image. Adam rebelled against God, and his sin tossed a wrench into the gears of God's creation. God's masterpiece was no longer perfect. Man's sin opened a Pandora's box and subjected creation to a host of hardships. After Adam's blunder, randomness invaded God's orderly universe. Before the fall of man, weather patterns were calm, always serene. Afterwards, winds started pushing moisture around and fronts collided and storms erupted. Without sin, the lamb lied down with the wolf. Since sin, wolves and lambs are now natural enemies. In a world without sin, all creation stayed alive and vibrant and healthy. Colors didn't fade. Materials didn't rot. Skin never sagged. Eyes never dimmed. Bodies never got sick. It was man's sin that brought disease and decay and deterioration into this world. Before Adam's sin, genetics worked like clockwork. But afterwards, damaged genes caused birth defects. We're now born with deformities that make life more difficult. 
You see, prior to sin, Adam lived with God and he lived forever. The Bible says that he walked with God. He enjoyed a right relationship with God and with himself and with other people. You can sum it up in a word, righteous. That was Adam before he sinned. Righteous. He had right relationships. But sin shook up this perfect world. It upset the apple cart. Sin ushered in death and decay. Not only did that mean that the human body would eventually die, it meant that Adam was immediately separated from God and from his fellow man. In a word, he was now unrighteous. And everyone has been affected by Adam's actions. The theologians call this original sin. Simply stated, because one man sinned, now all are sinners. But it's not just theologians who believe this idea. Recently I was reading where a critic of Christianity had questioned, isn't the doctrine of original sin only believed by dead people like Augustine and Calvin? Well, The person asked, he, he had an answer, he said no. And then he quoted shock jock Howard Stern of all people. Howard says, you're warped, I'm warped, we are all warped. That's original sin in a nutshell. We are all born warped. This means you can say you were born a specific way, a homosexual or an alcoholic or violent or prone to this or that. And though I might disagree with you, I don't even need to argue the point. For understand, what we were born is not necessarily a good thing. We're all born sinners. And that's a very bad thing. And the results of sin are always negative, not positive. We were created for right relationships with God and with ourselves and with others. But sin has warped us in those relationships. We should still pursue right relationships, but sin has now made them more difficult. And until we come to Jesus, we are unrighteous. God doesn't want you to be deceived. Verse 9 tells us, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This means that when people go to hell, they don't end up there because they committed adultery, or they practiced homosexuality, or they stole, or drunk themselves into a stupor. It wasn't the symptom that sent them to hell. All the inhabitants of hell are there because they're unrighteous, which means they're not in a right relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus. Paul is going to list some behaviors here that if you do them perpetually and habitually, it's evidence that you're not in a right relationship with Jesus. But it's not these deeds that throw the switch. They're just the underlying cause. You haven't turned from your sin and trusted in the Savior. For when you do, Jesus begins to untwist us. He unravels us little by little until our lives begin to straighten out. It takes some time, but it's God's desire for us all to live straight, not twisted up and tangled up. Life is easier when we get ourselves straightened out. Once there was a family, they were staying at a Nigerian hotel. They were visiting Africa. They heard a knock at the door. The dad, he opened the door and he found a man standing there. He was smiling. 
This African gentleman said that he was there. He was ready to clean up their room. Well, the family was embarrassed. They had just arrived. They had bags and clothes scattered about. There were wet towels on the floor. The dad began to apologize. That's when this young Nigerian told him, he said, No problem, sir. For this reason I have come to put your things in order. And this is the reason that Jesus has come. To untwist our confusion, to untangle our knot, and to put our lives in proper order. Again, don't think that God expects you to clean up your own mess and get everything in order before He saves you. That's not how Christianity works. We open up our hearts to Jesus. He takes us as is, and then He does the rearranging, the untangling, the straightening out. Sometimes we think, oh my, my life is so confused, so tangled up, so twisted. There's no way that I can be the kind of person that God desires me to be. Hey, you need to trust Jesus. Let him figure it out. Listen to Jesus. Do what he says. He will untangle the knot. Here's the big question. Has the process begun? If so, there'll be progress. Changes will occur. You won't be the same person. When Jesus rules, he sets a life in order. But if life for you is the same, if there's no evidence of change, if you're stuck in habitual sins and you find yourself justifying your lifestyle, then don't be deceived, for the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what that unrighteousness looks like. Paul compiles a list for us. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. These are all forms of twistedness and tangledness that Jesus straightens out when he's in charge. And if they persist in your life, it could just be that Jesus is not in charge. First, he says, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek word is familiar to us. It's pornos, from which we get our term pornography. And this was a broad term used for a whole host of illicit sexual activities. Prostitution, adultery, sex before marriage... Casual sex, friends with benefits, group sex, massage parlors, pornography, online sex, phone sex, incest, pedophilia, etc., etc. This included everything from seeing a pretty girl and thinking a lustful thought to grotesque bestiality. And today, sadly, the internet has made both available at the click of a mouse. Paul is warning us that if we keep clicking that mouse, if we continually indulge in these perversions, it will rot out our soul. We'll be trapped in a rut, in a lifestyle that we'll either hide or we'll try to justify. Again, Paul isn't saying that a person who's tempted with lust and falls in a moment of weakness can't inherit the kingdom of God. That's incompatible with other scriptures. God is gracious. There is forgiveness. God is rich in mercy. 
But if you are truly in a right relationship with Jesus, you'll know His love. You'll realize that your life is not just about you and gratifying your own selfish cravings. You'll start seeing other people as God sees them. Rather than treat a beautiful girl as an object, you'll see her as a sister in Christ. You'll acknowledge that she has a soul. You'll seek to please God, her Father, and want the best for her. If Jesus reigns in your heart, a life of lust will slowly unravel. Fornication will no longer be your lifestyle. If you think our culture today is sex-obsessed, it is nothing compared to Corinth. Above the city of Corinth sat the temple of Aphrodite on top of the mountain. Every night, temple priestesses would come down off the mountain and they would prostitute themselves in the city streets. Illicit sex wasn't just tolerated in Corinth. It was embedded in the local religion. Sex was worshipped. And this is why the second group on Paul's list of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God are idolaters. For when you rebel against God's standards, you need another God to then sanction your choices. You see, the Corinthians, they still wanted a God. They just didn't like the true God with the picky rules, especially about who they could and couldn't have sex with. And so rather than change their conduct... They just changed gods. It reminds me of the packed airplane. All boarded. It was taxiing out to the runway. The pilot came on the intercom. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the warning light is flashing a problem with the thermal expander valve on the number two engine. I will not fly until it's replaced. Pardon the inconvenience, but we have to return to the gate. Surprisingly, they were only at the gate about 10 minutes before they were ready to fly again. One of the passengers, he asked the flight attendant, he said, wow, that was quick. How did you get a new thermal expander valve so fast? The attendant replied, oh, there's not an expander valve for a thousand miles. We just got a new pilot. <laughs> Don't like the pilot's rules, so just get a new pilot. This is how people treat God. Don't like God's rules, we'll find another. They ditch God or they customize a faith in God that accommodates their sin. That's not the true God, that's idolatry. I read of a pastor who likes to take his church's freshmen for coffee on their first trip home from college. He catches up, there's a little chit chat. And then he asks them about their spiritual life. Often students will hem and haw, they'll finally confess that they're having some doubts. That that little bit of philosophy or some science class has rattled their faith. Well, whenever the pastor gets that kind of an answer, he looks the student square in the eye and he asks them, So, who have you been sleeping with? Well, usually after the shock, after they get up off the floor, the student replies, How did you know? See, the pastor knows that most of the time, the readers and students question their faith, it isn't the strength of the opposing arguments. It's the guilt of their own conscience. For if they can entertain a little doubt about God, then it allows them to question His wisdom and His standards and justify their compromise. It's not an intellectual crisis, it's a moral crisis. This is why idolatry and sexual sin 
go hand in hand. Third on Paul's list are adulterers. Again, it's possible for a Christian to yield in a moment of weakness and temptation, even sleep with another person's spouse, and repent afterwards, and God will forgive. Never forget the woman taken in the very act. Jesus told her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? Not all adulterers are headed to hell. Jesus can forgive. But it's the serial adulterer that lives under a question mark. Not the person who went and sinned no more, but the person who violates their vow again and again. How can you know Jesus and the fidelity he shows his bride without reciprocating that to your spouse? If you're committed to Jesus and him to you, how can you not treat your other commitments seriously? You see, it's the 35 million Americans who opened accounts on the Ashley Madison website that are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. And here's why. To be that deliberate, to log onto a website, to plot in your information and set up a profile, to then scan for opportunities and maybe even elicit chit-chat, this is not a one-time chink in your armor. How can you say you're in a right relationship with Jesus when you are so determined to violate the next most important relationship in your life? The one that actually symbolizes your fellowship with Jesus. How can you? Well, next on Paul's list are homosexuals and sodomites. A literal translation in the Greek language would be nor effeminate, nor abusers. The language here refers to the passive and the active participants in a same-sex encounter. Have you ever noticed when a relationship forms between two lesbians or two homosexuals, one usually assumes the male role and the other the female role? I mean, even same-sex relationships can't ignore the God-inspired roles of a husband and of a wife. Realize Paul wasn't writing in or to a homophobic society. Homosexuality was accepted in ancient Rome. In fact, 14 of the first 15 emperors were so indulged and bored with women that they toyed with homosexuality. I'm sure Christians in Corinth, they had friends and family in town who were homosexuals. Yet in the church, Paul is clear, this kind of lifestyle can't be condoned or tolerated. Again, this didn't mean that a man or a woman who struggles with same-sex attraction is going to hell. Not at all. We all struggle with sin of some sort. Jesus calls on us to trust in Him. He'll help us to overcome our temptation. He will. I understand there are homosexuals who don't ever remember not feeling the way they feel. Our identity as male and female form very early in our lives. Sometimes childhood events beyond our control will twist our psyche. Some folks believe they were born homosexual. But as I said earlier, just being born a certain way doesn't make it preferable. An alcoholic has a physical propensity toward alcoholism. Some psychologists suggest there's a gene that triggers violent behavior. Even if both are true, it doesn't justify alcoholism and violence. In fact, for the alcoholic and for the violent person, we'll want to help them overcome their sin. We'll pray for them that God will do a liberating work in their life. 
Today, homosexual activists want to make it criminal for us to try to help a person change their sexual orientation. Hey, if you have that attitude, I'm afraid you're fighting against Jesus. For Jesus wants to unravel and untangle all of our twisted identities. Gender is God-given. He wants men to be masculine and women to be feminine. And sex is God-arranged. He limits it to heterosexual marriage. Again, if you're a Christian who struggles, if you've even stumbled into some kind of homosexual sin, it doesn't mean that God is through with you. You are accepted in Christ. Jesus is merciful. He can work changes in your life. In every life, God seeks to untangle our twistedness. But if you're in a right relationship with God, you can't be wrong about this issue. Jesus is the groom and we are his bride. God speaks of his relationship with his people through a heterosexual paradigm. This is why if you've just given up the fight and you claim that a homosexual lifestyle is God's will for you, you are defiling and blurring the picture that God uses to illustrate his righteousness. That makes you unrighteous. You can't call good evil and evil good, then expect to inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul writes, nor thieves. For if Jesus is alive in your heart, he puts a love in you for God and for others. And if you love people, you can't be ripping them off. The same is true for covetous. Stealing is the act, coveting or envy is the attitude. And both fly in the face of love. They betray a right relationship with God. Paul also mentions drunkards. How can you drink your life away if you've truly been born again and received his life? Where Jesus is in charge, alcohol won't be. God wants his Holy Spirit to rule in our lives, not distilled spirits. Is alcoholism a sin or is it a disease? I believe it's both. There is a physical component to addiction. Our bodies can become dependent on a drug or alcohol. This is why they say in AA, once you become a pickle, you can never be a cucumber. It's true. If you're an alcoholic, you can't drink socially. You are always one drink away from a drunk. And that's the disease, the second and the third and the subsequent drinks. But once you know this, then it's up to you not to return to the poison and take that first drink. At that point, you are responsible. This is why if you drink that one, it's a sin. I know the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol. If you drink and you don't stumble yourself or others, then you have that liberty. But I have just seen so many genuine Christians have to fight this battle. Alcohol gets such a grip on their lives. I know people who struggled for years. They've had their victories, but they've been checkered by so many defeats. Is the little bit of buzz worth such a deadly risk? This is why Paul writes to the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And then Paul lists two more unrighteous lifestyles. He talks about the revilers and the extortioners. Neither will they inherit the kingdom of God. Revilers and extortioners are violence. They use violence to intimidate or to manipulate other people. Revilers use abusive words, whereas extortioners use abusive tactics. And both are bullies. I'm sure there are times when we've all said things that we shouldn't, when we've all acted toward others in manipulative ways. But if a person engages for years in uninterrupted, unrepentant patterns of abusive behavior, something is amiss in their relationship with God. It's very possible that the faith they claim to possess is not true saving faith. You can say you're a Christian, but Paul is telling us here in this text that if the evidence proves otherwise, then don't be a fool. There are people under the sound of my voice today who need to stop pretending and get down to business with Jesus. This morning, I, I want to be very redundant because I don't want to be misunderstood. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 is written to Christians. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, none of us can say we haven't sinned. Nowhere does the Bible teach that a Christian will be perfect. We're not. We will sin. We will stumble at times. All Christians will covet their neighbor's stuff from time to time. We'll use harsh words. Perhaps you'll drink too much. Maybe somebody else, it's a sexual sin. We all will have our fatal flaws. But if you're a Christian, it won't be perpetually. You'll repent of it. You'll get back up. You'll learn to trust Him more. Yet in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the very same author who wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, also writes, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The idea is that a believer who's born of God cannot continue in sin. We can stray, but the Holy Spirit acts like a GPS. He recalibrates our course. He, he gets us back on track. He steers us back in line. The New Testament teaches that when a believer sins, it will be considered out of character. Whereas if a person's sin is second nature to them, then how can they be born of God? Well, finally, whew, we reach verse 11. And there are not six more hopeful words in all of your Bible than these first six words. These words are grace-soaked. They are blood-bought. Read them with faith, my friend. Paul writes, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Apparently, this Corinthian church was quite a bunch. I mean, they had some problems. They couldn't be judgmental. They couldn't point their finger at anybody for their sins, for their perpetual. Because they had been right there. They had been the drunkards. They had been the homosexuals. They had been the thieves. They had been the fornicators. They had done it all. But now these people had been beautifully transformed 
by the grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, and such were some of you. I I love this idea. Picture this church. It's full of people. They're They're formerly lustful people who are now learning how to love each other the right way. There are ex-adulterers in this church who started tending the home fires and are working on their marriage. There are former idolaters here who now are letting God be God in their life. There are gender-confused people in this church who are untwisting their tangled identity and they're letting God reorder their feelings. How beautiful is that? There are repentant thieves here who are no longer taking, but now they're giving to others. They're drunkards here who've switched. They're not drinking distilled spirits any longer. They're drinking the living water. They're drinking the Holy Spirit and enjoying every sip. Then they're revilers. They're extortioners here in this church who have stopped trying to push people around, and now they're starting to lift people up. The Corinthian Christians, they didn't come from moral upbringings. These weren't Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. They didn't take oaths and sell cookies for fun. I mean, these Corinthians, they were a wild bunch. They were rowdy people. But notice the operative word. It's so beautiful. Were. And such were some of you. Paul says, it's all in your past now. Just as your sins are now in your past If you know Christ. And such were some of you. Come to Christ and He'll forgive you. He'll begin to work in your life to untangle your twistedness. Whatever it might be. In Christ, these people had become a new creation. Later, Paul will write to these very same believers... Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. He turns the scum of the earth into heirs of heaven. Listen to Paul. And such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's really good news. We've had our grandkids over, Colton, Grant, all weekend. And I've been running around the house, acting like a crazy preacher. And I've been running up to them and I've been shouting, And you were washed! And you were sanctified! And you were justified! They laugh and giggle. Because it sounds pretty cool. But man, I pray... I pray that one day they will realize just how cool it really is to be washed and sanctified, justified. You were filthy, but now you're washed. You were worthless, but now you're sanctified. You were guilty, but now you're justified. This past week, I went to the dentist to get my teeth clean. I hate going to the dentist. I'd rather get a colonoscopy. That's how much I hate it. But Kathy trapped me. 
She made the appointment without my knowledge. She handed me a piece of paper. This is when you need to be at the dentist. You're going to the dentist. You're a public speaker. You need to go to the dentist. That's what she said. She made the appointment for me. She even went with me to make sure that I actually got there. She knows me too well. And of course, I brushed my teeth before I went. And the whole time I'm brushing my teeth, I'm thinking, what a waste. I'm cleaning my teeth. Why do I need to pay somebody to do it? But when that lady went to work on me, she redefined the term wash. Because she scraped and etched and took that little chisel and started carving away. And she dug and she scrubbed and she polished my I'm afraid to eat anything now. My teeth are so clean. My teeth enjoyed a deep clean. And this is what Jesus does in a person's life. He washes us to the root. His work is effectual. It's actual. It changes me and you. The transformation isn't just theoretical. I become a new person, a better person when I'm in a right relationship with Jesus. Jesus does this for us. He washes us actually, but then he sanctifies us socially. He pulls us out of the rank and file. He grabs us out of the masses of the unnamed. And he makes us his own. To be sanctified is to become special to God, no less. Isn't that what these Corinthians had wanted all their life long? What do you think they were after with all this sex? I mean, a few moments of intimacy... Though impersonal, though empty, it still provides a taste of what their soul was missing. To be loved, to be treated by someone as truly special. But Jesus says there's a better way. There's a right relationship for you. For in me, in Christ, you are special. You're now a purchased possession. You belong to me and now I belong to you. How special can you be? This is the Right relationship with God. The person who knows Jesus. And then the Corinthian Christians were justified. I mean, before they came to Jesus, they spent all their time foolishly justifying and rationalizing their sinful stuff. But now Jesus is the one who is justifying them. You need to know, right now, in the court of heaven, Jesus is justifying me. The devil's there. He shall. You remember Sandy Adams? Lord, I know Sandy Adams. I've, I've been watching his perverse thoughts, his unloving acts, his selfishness. His I got the videotapes. It's right here. Just let me put it in and show you. And that's when my Lord, he holds up his nail-scarred hands. And he reveals that hole in his side. And he says, Father... I did this for Sandy. I wanted him. And I've justified my choice with my blood. Imagine, I am now being justified by Jesus. The case is over. All the devil's evidence has been ruled inadmissible. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus. I am now forgiven fully, freely, and forever. That's why I say, nothing is more powerful 
nothing more transforming, nothing more life-altering than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He alone straightens out twisted people. No matter how dark and immoral and nihilistic this world becomes, no matter how hopeless the future seems, there is a power in this world that cannot be corralled or contained. It can only be received by faith. And such were some of you. This is the power of the gospel.